Before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. We are reading this weekend from Parshat Korach, which is a challenging and interesting Parsha. It, it's about a rebellion in the early days of Israel on the journey toward the Promised Land that was led by Korach, who was a Levite, and a consortium associated with him that rejected Moses' leadership and they wanted to be in charge of everything. And so Karach led a rebellion and it became a disaster for him. It's often a challenge to, uh, to address this particular topic and I know when congregations are going through conflict and controversy, controversy and division, sometimes the rabbis come to Karach and they think, oh yeah, we're just gonna pound the conflictors. You know, but uh, we're in a good place as a congregation and everything's healthy and we've got uh, nice things going on and so we're not gonna talk about rebellion really. But we do wanna talk about a theme that's connected to this, which has to do with being satisfied and content with what God has given you so far, and being willing to serve the Lord with what you have. Say this with me, with what you have. And I was thinking about uh, how wonderful it is to return from vacation and come back to the to the synagogue, come back to the congregation, and to see so many people participating in ministry in the congregation, not waiting uh, to minister, but to say, right now I can minister. And, and today I was particularly joyful to see David Corshin playing the piano. How about you? Oh, he's still here. David, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you while you were here. I thought you'd already left, but uh, I don't mind embarrassing you with positive things. So, David wants to be even better as a pianist, you can imagine, and so in many ways he's a beginner, but he's not waiting to serve the Lord. He's serving the Lord now with what he does have, knowing he's gonna increase if he's faithful in, in doing so, and so I congratulate you for, for not waiting. I congratulate you for serving the Lord. And he comes from a family that, that is strong in this. When, when Rabbi Yuri was, uh, before he was a rabbi, he was uh, a leader in the Odessa Messianic congregation as a young man. And just as a, as a teenager, he was ready to serve the Lord when others weren't. And I remember when in, in that congregation there were many talented musicians who were not ready to serve. But Rabbi Yuri knew at that time, this is before he's a rabbi, he knew someone has to do it. And so he purposed to learn to play the guitar because other people who could already play the guitar wouldn't do it. 
And people who already knew how to play other instruments weren't so ready. And he just made himself ready and he started serving. And you know, the Lord gave increase to him. And, and the same with Rebetz and Ina. When, when she was a teenager, she became a home group leader. And she led a growing home group that grew and multiplied. And as a teenager, she had all ages from young to old in her home group. And she didn't say, I'm gonna wait until I'm old before I'm leading a home group with some old people in it. She served as a young person. And this is something that, that, that we should all take to heart. You can serve the Lord where you are with what you've got. You don't have to wait until later. We're not waiting for our children to grow up before we want them to serve in the congregation. When they're old enough to stand at the front door and smile, that's when we want them greeting. When, when they can dance a little bit, we want them to dance with what they've got. I, I remember when Daniel Belisov was young. Do you remember? You were young ones. <laughs> and he was just learning to play the violin. And there's a little scratchy. And now he's like amazing, right? Because he didn't wait. He didn't say, when I'm perfect, then I'll serve the Lord. He said, I'm gonna serve the Lord now. <laughs> and he's musical, so that became something fantastic. Now the story of Karach is an interesting story because it's about people who were appointed as Levites appointed by the Lord, they hadn't done anything to earn this position. It wasn't something that they prepared themselves for. The Lord just chose the tribe of Levi to do this work. But Karach and those around him weren't content with the responsibilities they were given. They, they thought what they had wasn't enough and that they should have what Moses had. And so they tried to take from Moses his authority upon themselves. It did not work out well. This attitude can get us in trouble, but I don't want to think about the extreme case of Karach, but to generalize it in a way that makes it more familiar to us. Because any one of us can say, what I have is not enough, that's why I can't do anything. There are people who say, well, I can't tithe, but if I have a million dollars, I promise you, I will start tithing. And I tell you what, if you get a million dollars and you give away 10% of that, you're gonna go, ouch, if you've never done it before. But when you learn to tithe on a dollar, then it'll be easier to tithe on $10. And then it'll be easier to tithe, tithe on $100 and so forth. If you wait, if you say what I have is not enough, you'll never get enough. And if you say I need what he's got, what she's got, or I can't serve, then you'll always be in a condition of covetousness, of jealousy, of envy, of wanting what belongs to someone else and not being content with what you have. Well, I wanna move to the reading that we have this weekend from the Gospel of Luke, which parallels this. And I want to focus on a parable that Yeshua told 
It's recorded in Luke 19, starting in verse 11, so turn there. By the way, do you have your Bibles with you? How many have old school, you know, good old paper Bible? How many, let me see. Yeah, a few of you, good. Okay, keep your paper Bibles. How many have your digital version with you? Good, that's more. And how many came empty-handed? Don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand. Aren't you glad though that we have compact forms? You don't have to carry several scrolls around. You know, now roll to the book of Isaiah and now roll to, no, you don't have to do that. It's really pretty easy. When I became a believer, someone gave me a Bible and I thought, what do you do with this? <laughs> and they said, well, bring it with you to every service. So I, I learned to do that. And then I had the awkward adjustment because growing up in a conservative synagogue, we read from the Chumash, from the five books of Moses, which are in a particular order. Uh, and because we're reading in a Hebrew book, we're going in the opposite direction than an English book is going. So the front is the back and the back is the front. And so I was sort of familiar with that. And the Haftorah portions were joined into the text. So if you found one, you found the other. That was all good. But then when I went to the small spirit-filled congregation, they used like a Protestant uh, Bible order. And the front of the book was the back and the back of the book was the front and there was no Hebrew in it, and it had all the books of the Bible in there, and I didn't know how to find them. But I was too embarrassed to, you know, like acknowledge that. So what I would do is I would watch people open their Bibles, you know, and I'd see about how thick it was and I would try to open mine approximately to that thickness and to see if I was in the right place. And I knew enough to know, you know, like, do you go back or go forward to find the books? And every so often, I still couldn't find what I needed to, and I'd have to go to the front of the book, which had an index, and like, look at it. But I survived. And you can too. So we're looking in Luke chapter 19. I, I won't go into the whole context of this because we want to focus on the parable, but it starts with this. While they were listening to this, Yeshua went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear at any moment and therefore he said, this is the beginning of the parable. And when he tells the parable, he just tells it short and sweet though it's not sweet. Here's how it begins. A nobleman went to a country far away to have himself crowned king and then return. Another translation has it this way. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to lay claim to his kingship and then return. And this was understandable to the people of that time period who were part of the Roman Empire because the vassal kings in, in each district, in each area, 
would typically go to Rome in order to be confirmed by Caesar that they were legitimate. And they, they would come back not just under their own authority and the legitimacy of their reign according to what they say, but they would have the power of Rome behind them. And so this was not a man who aspired to be king. He was in line to be king. But he still went far away in order to get confirmation. So he's going for this purpose. Verse 13, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 manim. Mana is about, or mina in some translations, is about three months wages. So think about how much money you make in a year or in a month and calculate it. If, you, if someone gave you three months wages, uh, would they be entrusting you with a, a fair amount of money? Yeah, more than you normally have on hand uh, from your single paychecks. So he gave them 10 manim, and if a mana is three months wages, 10 manim would be, what, two and a half years worth of wages? Wow. It's a lot. And he said to them, do business with this while I'm away. Now, remember this, Yeshua told a number of parables uh, that have the theme of a master entrusting money to his servants to invest and multiply while, he's, while the master is away on a journey. And the more familiar version is, I think, from Matthew 25. But this one has some very specific details that make it different. And it really is quite different. So pay attention to these details and, and don't muddle them up with the Matthew version. Actually follow along in the text if you can. And take time afterwards to read the text, including the context, the, the prior verses and uh, sections, so that you can see more for yourself. It's very interesting. The Matthew version is also interesting, but the Luke 19 version is quite provocative. So back to the reading from Luke 19, now in verse 14. It says this, but his countrymen hated him. And they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to rule over us. So he was unpopular. Think about these two details. Number one, his countrymen hated him. And number two, they sent a delegation after him. Now the delegation is not chasing him. They are going to the same authorities he's going to with the idea that they will appeal to the good senses of those authorities and they won't appoint him king. That's their goal. Think of what a delegation is. It's a small group of people sent as a representative of a larger group of people. So the delegation went to the ones who would crown this nobleman as king over them, and they had a message. We don't want this man to rule over us. And here you can see some of the thematic connections between Korach, the Torah portion, and this portion. Similar to Korach's attitude, we don't want Moses to rule over us. We don't want him to have what we want for ourselves. Verse 15, however, say that one word with me, however. However, he returned having been made king. 
and sent for the servants to whom he had given the money to find out what each one had earned in his business dealings. So, however, he returned having been made king. You know what that means? The delegation was not successful. They went, they made their case, they communicated everything that they intended to, but the powers that be still appointed this man king, much to their chagrin. So the group that sent the delegation did not get what they wanted. Now verse 16, so this is about the servants who are being asked to give a report on what they did with the money that had been entrusted to them. The first one came in and said, sir, your mana has earned 10 more manim. Excellent, he said to him, you're a good servant because you've been trustworthy in a small matter, I'm putting you in charge of 10 cities. Now, the money seemed like a lot, right? Because it was two and a half years worth of wages. But 10 cities is a whole different thing. The master didn't tell them how this was gonna work. He simply said, I'm gonna give you this new business. And you know, sometimes people wanna know everything in advance, but this master didn't tell them anything. He just said, here's money, make it grow. When I come back, give it back. It was like that. Verse 18, the second one came and said, sir, your mana has earned five more manim. And to this one he said, okay, you'll be in charge of 10 towns. So these servants who, who managed money were given governmental authority, do you see? And believe me, 10 manim is nothing compared to 10 cities to be in charge of. It seems like a lot if it's just personal money. But when you think of the economic activity and responsibility of being in charge of 10 cities, that's huge. Now the third one, verse 20, another one came and said, sir, here's your manna. I kept it safe in a handkerchief. <laughs> and here the story is funny. I took my handkerchief and I wrapped your money in that. And here it is back. I, I kept it hidden in that piece of cloth because I was afraid of you. You take out what you didn't put in and you harvest what you didn't plant. So in a way, this guy is saying, I didn't have enough in order to produce anything. In fact, you scared me. You intimidated me. And the master is, is not really moved by this. You know, he doesn't say, wow, you know, your self-esteem is so low. I didn't make allowances for that. And I'm sorry that I intimidated you. I should have been much sweeter in the way I managed this. You poor man. Could you come sit with me and we'll fix everything? That's not how the story goes. And remember, the story is going pretty quick. Verse 22. So to him the master said, poor child. No, he says, you wicked servant. I'll judge you by your own words. So you knew, did you, that I was a severe man? <laughs> None of this modern coddling 
nor any effort to justify himself or to fix the situation. He says, you knew I was severe and that I take out what I didn't put in and harvest what I didn't plant, then why didn't you put my money in the bank instead? Then when I returned, I would have gotten it back with interest. Very few details, but very powerful, isn't it? And to those standing by, he said, take the manna from him and give it to the one with 10 money. And they said to him, but sir, he already has 10 money. And the master said, I tell you, everyone who has something will be given more, but from anyone who has nothing, even what he does have will be taken away. Now, I think it's important to understand what he's saying here. He's not saying this, that every person who has money is going to be given more money because all three of these servants had been given money. Do you understand that? And only two of them were given more, but they weren't given more money. They were given other kinds of responsibility. Do you see that? So this isn't really about money, even though the story is including money. It's about something else. And he's saying everyone who has something. Now, what I think that means is everyone who has something to show for his efforts. Everyone who has uh, done something with what he already has. One translation puts it this way. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. So there's this important principle and theme here that's, that's part of the story, and that is, with what you have now, be productive. Don't just wait and say, well, I can't do anything unless I have more. Especially don't have that karach attitude, which is, I can't really do anything unless I have what you got. I want what you have. So I think what this means is everyone who has some fruit, everyone who used what he had been given and produced something, this one will be given more. It's the principle of growth, uh, which is if you don't use something, you will lose it. But if you use it, it will increase. So the second part is also important from anyone who has nothing. But you see, in the story, even the servant who had one mana had something. So it wasn't that he had nothing. So I think what this means is everyone who has nothing to show for his efforts. He didn't do anything. He took the resources that had been entrusted to him and he put them in a handkerchief. He did not even think to put it in the bank. That's the critique. You could have gotten something from this. So we could understand it this way. Everyone who brought no gain from what he had been given. Everyone who says, I didn't have enough. You didn't give me enough. Or you're too hard. You're too demanding. You expect too much. Verse 27. However, let's say that again. However. Remember the last however? This is the second however. However, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be their king, and here this is similar to Karach and the theme of Karach. They did not want Moses to be ruling over them, but that was just the tip of the iceberg. They really didn't want the Lord to be ruling over them. They wanted to rule, but without 
having a right relationship with God and those who had been uh, initially given responsibility. So in this statement, Yeshua is telling the parable still, and he says, however, as for these enemies of mine, and this, this is what the master says in the story, who did not want me to be their king, bring them here and execute them in my presence. It's an interesting comment, isn't it? And the story really has turned for the worse. <laughs> Especially if you are an aficionado of sweet baby Jesus. And you like Jesus to be sweet all the time and you think, you know, he only has nice things to say to everybody all the time and he's good with anything, as long as you're sincere. Uh, this will not fit in with that picture of sweet Jesus. I mean, sweet Jesus wouldn't even tell stories like this. <laughs> These enemies of mine who did not want them to, me to be their king, bring them here and execute them in my presence. Now in this respect, it's similar, the story is similar to details that are familiar to everyone at the time about the way Rome would rule. Because when Rome would would assert authority or gain authority over any dominion, they expected everyone to bow down to Caesar. And anyone who didn't bow down was just killed. That was it. As was it Stotland who said, no man, no problem. You get rid of the person and you get rid of the problem. That was the, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was the Roman way. They didn't negotiate. They didn't talk sweet. They just said, no, no problem. You don't want to bow down, you're dead. And in fact, the whole process of crucifixion was connected to this Roman mentality, which is torture people publicly as you're executing them in order to communicate to everyone why they don't want to do the same thing in the future. So it's an interesting comment because it's a comment about the heart condition, the attitude that's in opposition. That's also the heart condition and attitude of Karach and his rebellion. And Karach, like these people, was saying, we don't want you to be in charge. Verse 28, after saying this, Yeshua went on and began the ascent to Jerusalem. That's a tough story, isn't it? That's a really tough story. And, and sometimes it's hard to, to teach from this passage, so unless you want, you know, like your adversary is all destroyed. <laughs> now, if, if your view of God is that he's the pre-incarnation of Santa Claus, you know, he's, he's up there in the clouds, he's got a big gray hair, big gray beard, and sort of a ho, ho, ho attitude to everyone. Ho, 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 whatever you want, little children. And he's just doling out nice things one to another. If that's your view of God, then this whole part of the scriptures is, is unpleasant. 
which is why often it's ignored. And why some people don't like to read the Torah because they see that God sometimes is severe. Sometimes he is. It's important to know that, that God uses the minimum amount of force necessary to accomplish anything. He doesn't go overboard. He uses the least amount. But even so, if, if your view of Messiah is sweet Jesus and your view of God is ho, 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 then this doesn't really fit in. And that's why it's in the scriptures. So that if you have those two views, you will adjust them to something else. Now stories like this can be understood in different ways. One of the ways that people like to use these stories is to use them to judge other people. You don't believe in Yeshua, okay. Death to you. You know, that good Roman attitude. <laughs> no problem. A guy I really like, a Jewish believer in Texas, Kinky Friedman. He, you, you might know about him, you might not, but he was a Jewish believer with a Texas hard attitude. I left out the word, hard attitude. And uh, he was a great musician. Sandy and I saw him perform, I think, in Washington, D.C. at the cellar door. Yeah, and uh, his group at the time was called Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys. <laughs> and during that time, part of his repertoire was a song he wrote called, They're Not Making Jews Like Jesus Anymore. <laughs> it, it was very funny. Well, when he became a believer, he, he was just a sassy. That never changed. And he was a cigar-smoking, hard-talking Jewish believer in Texas who decided to run for governor about 10 years ago. And some people made a big deal out of the fact that he was a Jew, but he believed in Jesus. And so with his stogie, he just said, it's, a, it's fine. You don't want to believe in Jesus? Just go to hell. <laughs> that was his attitude. And only Kinky Friedman could say it the way he said it. <laughs> but that's not really God's attitude. He's wanting everybody to be preserved. In fact, if you read the, the earlier parts of Luke 18 and 19, you'll see that Yeshua is going to people who are public sinners and he's touching them in their hearts. But the holier people and the more religious people are disturbed by it because people like us get disturbed when God does things his way, not our way. That's our problem. And we have, to, we have to face that. You see, we can use scriptures like this to judge other people, but that will only have a limited uh, usefulness for ourselves. So another way to understand them is to apply them to ourselves. That's much harder. So when you say, oh, this is about me, not somebody else, when you read about Karach and say, oh, this is about me, 
and this human tendency that we all have, then we ask different kinds of questions. And we, we can say, for instance, reading about Karach and reading about uh, the people described in this parable Yeshua taught. We can say, well, what are the ways I'm being fruitful with what the Lord has given me? And are there any areas in my life that I'm saying aren't enough to use productively to the Lord? Am am I mimicking the same attitude and saying, you know what, I've had a tough life or I don't have enough or someone else has more than me. So yeah, they could be fruitful, but there's nothing I can really do. I'm gonna take my resources, I'm gonna take my time, my money, my heart, my mind, uh, my physicality, my relationships, my talents, my gifts, and I'm just gonna wrap them up in a handkerchief and set them aside. When we do that, we won't be fruitful at all. And it it will not go well for us. You will hear Rabbi Yuri and me often talk about the value and the importance of serving in the congregation, serving the Lord, serving in the ministries of the congregation. And one of the reasons we do this is because we understand that God is not just looking for people who give a nod and have assent to doctrines and teachings, but he's looking for people who put into practice what he teaches about. And he's looking for everyone to serve with what they have. You can't serve with what you don't have, but you can serve with what you do have. So this whole passage raises an important and sometimes neglected understanding of what the Lord's looking for. It's important to him that we are fruitful and that we're productive with our God-given talents, our gifts, and any resources the Lord has provided for us. And I think that the willingness, the desire to be productive for the Lord with what we currently have, it's an indication of our heart attitude to him as Lord. When we say, you know, Lord, I'm gonna tithe on what you've given me so far because I wanna honor you with what you've already done. I'm not gonna wait until later. I'm going to do it now. We're acknowledging what God has already accomplished. Living this life of faith with this in mind will keep us motivated, I think, to bring forth good fruit. Now, a few weeks ago, back in May, I think it was May 11th, I read a story about a man in Australia who had reached an age where he could no longer serve the way he had been serving. This man donated blood every week for 60 years. And according to the headline, he helped save the lives of as many as 2.4 million babies. So here's the story, I'm gonna just read to you parts of it. Uh, Most people when they retire get a gold watch. James Harrison deserves much more than that. Harrison known as the man with the golden arm has donated blood nearly every week for 60 years. After all those donations, the 81-year-old Australian man retired that Friday in May. The occasion marked the end of a monumental chapter. According to the Australian Red Cross Blood Service, he's helped save the lives of more than 2.4 million Australian babies. Harrison's blood 
has unique disease-fighting antibodies that have been used to develop an injection called anti-D, which helps fight against rhesus disease. The disease is a condition where a pregnant woman's blood actually starts attacking her unborn baby's blood cells. And in the worst cases, it can result in brain damage or death for the babies, and here's why. <clears throat> the condition develops when a pregnant woman has rhesus negative blood, RHD negative, and the baby in her womb has rhesus positive blood, RHD positive, inherited from its father. If the mother had been sensitized to rhesus positive blood, usually during a previous pregnancy, with a rhesus-positive baby, a lot of details, she may produce antibodies that destroy the new baby's foreign blood cells. And this can be deadly for the baby. Now the story goes on to say, Harrison's remarkable gift of giving started when he had major chest surgery when he was just 14 years old. Blood donations saved his life, and so he pledged to become a blood donor. A few years later, doctors discovered that his blood contained the antibody, which could be used to create anti-D injections. So he switched over to making blood plasma donations to help as many people as he could. Doctors are not exactly sure why Harrison has this rare blood type, but they think it might be from the transfusions he received when he was 14 after his surgery. You get it? The problem he had created a strength and a solution for so many. He's one of no more than 50 people in Australia known to have the antibodies. Every bag of blood is precious, but James' blood is particularly extraordinary. His blood is actually used to make a life-saving medication given to moms whose blood is at risk of attacking their unborn babies. Every batch of anti-D that has ever been made in Australia has come from James' blood. And more than 17% of women in Australia, in Australia are at risk, so James has helped save a lot of lives. The story goes on, I won't go into the rest of it, but it really struck me that the problem this guy had became someone else's solution. What he went through strengthened him, changed him. It could have taken his life, but it didn't. And as a result, he was fortified and transformed so that he could save others. What a wonderful testimony. What if he had just felt bad for himself? I was 14, I went through hell. What if that was the full measure of his response? Well, it wasn't. Instead, he had this attitude, I went through hell and I'm alive. I went through tough times. I went through the worst of situations, but you know what? I was saved through it. And now I can help other people. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? A wonderful testimony. Donating blood every week for 60 years. But the amazing thing is, he was changed into something through this process. And even his blood was used to save uh, his daughter and I think his grandchild. 
Such an amazing, amazing testimony. So I read about stories like that. I hear about stories like that, and it motivates me. I want to be a tree that brings forth good fruit for the Lord. How about you? I don't want to wait and say, later. I want to be able to say, now, with what I have, I want to serve the Lord. Now, Sandy and I just finished celebrating our 42nd anniversary And it was awesome, it was one of the best times we've ever had. So really terrific time away and away from you, but together. (laughs) That was so terrific. What was terrific is that we were together and we had just a wonderful time being refreshed together. And last night, as I was getting ready to wrap up, I remembered a moment that that happened while we were gone on vacation. We were at a grocery store that had special mangoes. And if you're from Jacksonville, you see mangoes all the time, right? They're at the store, and right now you can get five for five dollars, and sometimes they're good. But these mangoes were from Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast in Africa, and they were amazing. They were specially packaged, and uh, they were gorgeous, so so beautiful. I took a picture, not just one, I took many pictures of this mango. But I was looking at the mango and the price, and I I had had one of these mangoes from Cote d'Ivoire, Uh, before, and it was amazing. And so I was debating, should I get it, should I not get it? Because it was more than $5 for one mango. You know, it's not like buying a car. It's it's just a mango. (laughs) But in any case, I looked at it and found the price, and I decided it's our 42nd anniversary. We're going to have a great mango. I'm going to get it. And so I put it in the cart, and when I was checking out, it was like the last thing, you know, because I wanted it to be specially protected. And the cashier scans the barcode, and nothing comes up. And so he manually enters the UPC number, and nothing comes up. And so he calls the produce department and says, here's what I'm looking for, what's the price? And they say, we don't know. And so he looks at me and he says, do you have any idea how much this was? And I said, yeah, it was like five something. And he says, well, today it's free. (laughs) And I was nervous because this mango, this was some mango. I was afraid to actually take it and put it in my cart in the bag to to go home because it was a precious mango from Cote d'Ivoire. But I did, and it was free. So instead of costing five bucks, it cost nothing. And you know, in Jacksonville, you can get five mangoes for five bucks. If you buy them by the carton, you know, like 20, you can get them even cheaper. But this was not a Jacksonville mango. 
we, we get back home and I'm in awe of this mango. And I carefully wash it and then I prepare it and cut it. It's a big mango too. It's close to a two pound mango, you know. It's a big mango, yeah. And the color inside is gorgeous and I prepare it for Sandy and me to eat. And we started eating it and we were having an intoxicating mango moment. <laughs> if you can imagine that. <clears throat> and if I never eat a mango so good again, I will not forget this mango. And that came to mind as I was wrapping up last night and again today. It's a simple thing, you know, a mango, even an incredible mango is just a few bucks. But this was like a present from the Lord. That's how I took it. And even though it was the cashier who said, you know, we don't have any price, it's free. I thought he was joking. But that was really what happened. And I wanna just thank the Lord for small things that I take pleasure in. Because I've learned something. When you take notice of small things that the Lord does, then you'll really notice big things he does. And for the Lord, being appreciative of small things is the gateway for big things. It's that simple. And so don't forget the mangoes. And I encourage you, if something good, even small, happens to you. Take notice of it, tell other people. Be glad about it, rejoice in it. And in this way, you'll become even more fruitful yourself. And if this is true for real fruit, it's also true for spiritual fruit. That's what the whole message is, is about. That you can serve the Lord with what you have. And you can make a difference now. Don't wait. Even if it's just one thing you can do, do it and do it well. Don't be one of those people who just waits and waits and says later, do what you can. Now, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your goodness to us. We know, Lord, that what you have given us so far is cause for rejoicing. What you've done in our lives so far is enough. It would have been enough if you did just one thing, but you've done many things. And you've given us fullness of life. And for that reason, we give thanks to you. And we say we would have fainted unless we had believed we would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But we surely have seen your goodness. And so with that in mind, we say thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness and all that you've done for us. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to close this part of the service and then we are going to continue with uh, a special memorial service. If you can stay, I encourage you to stay after the ironic benediction and we'll have a short time celebrating the life of Sharon Hartwell. And after that, we're gonna have a nice oneg and fellowship together.
please rise. Yivarechecha Adonai, v'yishmarecha. Ya'er Adonai, panavelecha v'yichunecha, yisa Adonai, panavelecha v'yasemlecha. Shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his shalom. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat shalom. So if you can stay, please stay here for the next few minutes.